Welcome to the Forbidden Forest. This is James reading chapter 16 of Death and Other Origin Stories, The Badger and the Wolf. March 3rd, 1974. The silence that followed the thudding of the closing hospital wing doors was peppered with Peter's sniffling and the deep steadying breaths of James as he held fast to Remus's bony frame. She just fainted, Remus. She was like a rag doll. He muttered the words out haltingly, his fear palpable and metallic at the back of Remus's tongue, his limbs shaky. What the fuck was under the bed? Madame Pomfrey will sort her out, Remus offered softly as he held James firmly to him, stroking his thick black hair like his mum used to do for him after the full moons to make him feel better. He could feel the prickling fear breaking out across his bare skin beneath Remus's cold hands as uncertainty and the weight of what they had witnessed wrapped around them both. Peter appeared beside them, holding out the ratty and rather faded terry cloth bathrobe from off his back and draped it gingerly across James's shoulders. It would have been a bit gross in any other circumstance, but in the serious atmosphere outside the hospital wing, Peter's small efforts seemed stoic and sweet. As the minutes ticked by, slow and thick and heavy, their numbers by the sentry wooden doors increased. First it was Marlene, still in her slippers, all of a dither from the cryptic story of Lily's departure from the fat lady, who had been nearly inconsolable with worry, sending her painted and rather hysterical friend Violet from portrait to portrait towards the hospital wing, desperate for updates. Remus had barely finished explaining the story when Dorcas and Alice, both of whom looked as though they'd run from the showers without bothering to dry their sopping hair, in a state of similar harassment from the sentry Gryffindor portrait, came running up the steps, completely out of breath. James, at their frantic appearance, had regained some semblance of composure, eyes red and mouth a hard line, and he began a secondary stage of his vigil, harried pacing. He walked mechanically back and forth beside the hospital wing doors, barefoot, clutching Peter's too small robe around his tense shoulders. The rest of them stood there in the stone corridor outside the stark white of the hospital wing, little lions ill-equipped to deal with the heaviness of such circumstances. Marlene, Alice, Dorcas, Peter, and Remus all occasionally chanced glances between each other while James marched and muttered under his breath. The silence between them was buzzing with tension, and through the white swinging doors to the aseptic white-tiled wing beyond, the wolf picked up the hum of voices, much too quiet for that of uncursed human ears. A stream of confessions was seemingly streaming forth from Sirius's mouth at Madame Pomfrey's promptings. I tried to break the curse myself with Arnica's second law. That, and I thought a modified Scarpin's revealer. His voice trailed away under Madame Pomfrey's outburst. For Merlin's sake, Black, what was the original curse intended to do? She sounded panicked and frightened. The shrill tone of her voice caused the hairs on the back of Remus's neck to prickle and raise. Alice, sitting on the floor next to Peter now, sniffled hard. I don't know what it's meant to do, but it'll have something to do with her blood, with her lineage, m maybe her future children. Sirius's voice shook, and Remus could imagine the way his hands would be curled in his lap. Madame Pomfrey tutted with impatience. The clinking of glass bottles and vials accompanied muttered spells as she tried to halt the vitriolic curse of the family black. So far, Lily hadn't uttered a sound, as far as Remus could tell. This is a fine mess indeed, Mr. Black, she berated. 
Brisk footsteps echoed from the stairs and halted James in his pacing, and he adjusted the robe, tying the sash tight around him. He looked somehow battle-ready, as if the robe and his fear were thick armor, and all he needed was a villain to conquer, to set things right, to save the girl. What happened? came Severus's worried and accusatory voice as he climbed the steps towards them, the seventh attendant of their council. He was wide-eyed and pale, his cheeks blotchy and red. A portrait came to find me, said Lily was in the hospital wing. There was an accident, Remus started, stepping forward with his hands in the pockets of his gray trousers. The thin soles of his old chucks squeaked on the stone floor. What kind of an accident? Snape demanded, looking directly at James, who pulled the rumpled terry cloth tighter around him, glaring defiantly back. She fainted, Peter offered in an attempt to placate Snape. What did you do? The portrait said she was in your dorm. Severus's voice was damning as he pointed a shaking finger at James. His eyes burned into Severus, and his chest puffed out, his hands clenched into fists at the accusation that he would ever dare put anyone in harm's way, let alone Lily Evans. Why are you even here, Snape? This is a Gryffindor matter, James spat back. I'm Lily's best friend, you wart, Severus challenged. Bully for you, Peter snapped as Remus gripped James's arm as a precaution. We're all her friends. The echoing footsteps of yet more interlopers disrupted the erupting tension between them, with Professors Dumbledore, McGonagall, and Shafiq all striding into view with purpose, expressions stern and stoic, sweeping past and scattering the huddle of high-strung third years. The wake of their passing seemed to dissolve the threat of petty squabbling between them all, and the seven of them gazed hopefully behind the three professors as the swinging doors fluttered open and shut. The fragile moment of hope that heralded their arrival was quickly swallowed by the renewed silence of the stone corridor, the whiff of lemon and astringent cleaning solutions from beyond quickly dissipating. As the doors had swung closed, Remus had caught sight of Sirius, sitting meekly on a lone metal stool, the type Madame Pomfrey often used to reach the highest shelves of potions above the cabinet of dried herbs and salves. Sirius sat horribly still and slumped, pale and sick with grief, clutching the innocuous green bottle. Lily's still prone form on the crisp hospital linens had been ensconced in a web of glowing spellwork under Madame Pomfrey's furrowed brow. As soon as the door thudded closed, James erupted into speech. That's it. I'm going in there. To which Severus stepped in front of him, cold and defiant. If anyone's going in there, it's me. Stand down, James growled, the robe slipping from his shoulder in the wake of his anger and worry. Never, Snape spat. Peter, too, drew his wand, unable to contain himself as everyone's emotions began to boil over. Remus, do something, Dorcas pleaded, covering her face with her hands as Peter stepped in front of them, trying to shield them from the fray. Stay out of this, James spat as the two boys began circling each other. Afraid to take me on without Black here to run to your aid, Severus growled, his eyes gleaming and teeth bared. James's face burned a deep red. Where is he anyways? Not that he cares about Lily at all, the self-obsessed toad. James, Lily won't forgive you for fighting Severus, Remus tried, stepping gingerly forward with his hands up. His baggy maroon sweater slipped down to his elbows, revealing his pale, scarred forearms. Severus's gaze flashed towards him, calculating and suspicious. Did you do this to her, Lupin? Severus asked. The question baffled him, but he wasn't given a chance to respond. 
Don't think I haven't noticed all your scars. I know you're dangerous. Remus was rooted to the spot, hands still up in frozen placation, mouth ajar, brain unable to decide what comes next, when he heard James and Peter shouting at the same time, drowning out Severus's countercurse. Severus's legs began to jerk wildly, dancing beneath him as James's spell hit him. At the same time, Peter's poorly cast aphivores forced patches of feathers to sprout in unsightly clumps beneath his robes and make his nose elongate into a beak. James fell forward, projectile vomiting several giant slugs onto the floor, and Marlene just barely managed to dodge a similar fate by diving sideways into Alice. Remus came back to himself as he saw Peter raise his wand at the feathered and flailing Slytherin and reached for his wrist. Don't, Peter, he snapped, but Peter looked vicious and protective. It was then that the hospital door slammed open, revealing a harassed and aggrieved Professor McGonagall, glaring down at the scene before her. She marched towards James in his puddle of slugs and Severus in his squawking fury and dragged them, groaning and furious by the ear towards her office down the hall, ranting and raving about never having a single moment's peace between a potter and a black in her house. Remus and the rest were left standing there in the ringing silence. When the echoing footsteps and muffled complaints of James and Severus finally faded from the hall, Remus tiptoed gingerly to the great wooden doors and placed an ear against it, trying hard to hear what was happening inside. Peter and Alice followed his lead, but based on the furrow of their brow, they could hear little more than garbled tones. This is unacceptable, Madame Pomfrey was saying vehemently. I don't care how it came into your possession, you should have handed it over as soon as you realized it was cursed. Professor Shafiq was trying to console in soft tones, offering, Madame Pomfrey, the things we receive from our parents, they can be complicated. Complicated my ass, she shouted, followed by what sounded like a bedpan crashing to the floor. I'll need to owl St. Mungo's immediately and ask for support. This is beyond me. Dear boy, came Dumbledore's gentle voice, what can you tell me about this curse? What do you know about it? There was a long pause before Sirius found his voice, weak and timid as it was. They they hate muggles and muggle-borns. Madame Pomfrey tutted in anger. Yes, well, continue, Dumbledore prompted gently. I know she, Walburga, I mean, she talks about ending family lines, not allowing muggles to carry on wizarding blood or names, ruining their chances at a family, or killing them, but that's not creative enough for her, to be honest. And what did she want you to do with it? Shafiq asked. To to make them bleed, Sirius said, his voice wavering slightly. I tried to change it, Professor. I did. I wasn't trying to leave it out for someone to be hurt. Sirius had eventually come out of the hospital wing, face drawn and pale, his self-loathing palpable in the way his shoulders sloped and how he walked like a beaten dog. He looked up into Remus's face for a fleeting moment before shaking his head and carrying himself down the stairs and out of sight. James had come back from McGonagall's office, free of slugs but filled with a renewed anger, whinging about Severus and making plans for revenge with Peter, who was equally vexed with Severus for putting dear Marlene in the line of fire of a rogue hex in the heat of spellcasting. James and Sirius had tiptoed around one another in the intervening days, being awkwardly polite and unsure in one another's presence. It was unsettling and drew the attention of nearly everyone in the house. 
word had spread about Lily's mysterious injury, the fact that she hadn't been allowed visitors in the hospital wing, and that Sirius and James were somehow involved. No one but a few crass souls, Gideon among them, asked them what had happened. Remus hadn't known what to tell him, really. A spell gone awry was all he could muster. As the wet rains of March began to melt the remaining snowdrifts against the castle walls and battlements, fresh heads of daisies and clovers burst forth from the chilled, damp ground, heralding the beginning of spring, and with it, the increasingly concerning behavior of Sirius Black. Sirius stopped coming to the dorm room until well after midnight, every night, and was first to rise and be gone the next morning. He was missing from mealtimes, and was several times called to the headmaster's office for missing class. Remus tried, in his own way, to bring Sirius back to a normal place, but it seemed his efforts were all in vain. He left little plates of scones and chocolates on his bedside table that went untouched. He sent him notes in class, trying to cheer him up, but received no reply. He left him memos on his bed about assignments that were due, that were left unacknowledged and assignments unfinished. Whenever Remus tried to stop Sirius in the halls, or grab his attention in the common room, he had an irritating way of using sudden diversions to escape. Marlene, Alice, and Dorcas were distraught and confused about Sirius's role in what had happened, and as such, oscillated between hounding him for information and being resolutely cold towards him. The acrid atmosphere seemed to repel Sirius from the shared spaces of the castle, and Remus wondered where he kept himself hidden. Between an unusually subdued James, a downtrodden Sirius, and a relentlessly unaware Peter, he felt as if their little group were falling to shambles. All the while, the dark storm cloud of Lily's absence hung over their heads, disallowing them to fall back into their normal routines and rhythms, their easy banter and jovial nonsense. March 8, 1974 the day of the full moon in March was a Friday, according to his moon calendar. As he pulled on a worn sweater over his head, Remus saw that the moon would rise over the horizon at two minutes past ten in the morning. With James and Sirius having just left for infancy, discussing the complicated charts they had to finish during breakfast, and Peter trying desperately to find Alice to copy her homework before charms, Remus was left with ample time to meander quietly down to the Whomping Willow in his cosseted tunnel. He walked swiftly past the great hall, opting to forego any breakfast, the near moon making him nauseous and restless. The cloudy grounds opened up beyond the great oak doors, and he winced at the sudden brightness, wondering idly what he would miss in eloquency that day. He recalled with some fondness the night earlier in the week where he and James had stayed up writing their assignments together in their battered and well-used notebooks. What are the key concepts you would uphold in a system of virtue-based ethics, were you to design your own? At the end of several thick hours of contemplation and debate, they had far more questions than answers. Was autonomy more important than public safety? Was justice a reasonable expectation for a society? What would inform the concept of justice? How does one define punishment? Remus had been sincerely looking forward to Professor Shafiq's questions and the class discussion on their chosen virtues. Sirius had been remarkably silent on the topic, and he didn't have to think hard to guess why. Lost in thought, Remus let his feet carry him down the steps and out onto the sloping lawns behind a group of first-year Hufflepuffs on their way to Herbology. An excited little blonde boy chattered animatedly about the Nifflers he had just read about, bursting at the seams, 
and he wondered balefully if he had ever been that small or that excited. He tucked his hands deep into the pockets of his brown and fraying corduroy and cut across the path, away from the little parade of younger years. Remus ruminated on one of his proposed virtues, kindness to all living beings, wondering if his inner wolf was even capable of such a lofty, ironically humanitarian goal. Halfway to Hagrid's hut, Marlene appeared quite suddenly, as if by apparition beside him, linking their arms together and startling him quite thoroughly from his musings. Oh, Remus, won't you walk with me? I'm so dreadfully worried about Lily. Uh, Remus stuttered, alarmed and taken off guard. He had been so lost in thought he hadn't heard her coming and now didn't know what to do that she was here. I just need someone to talk to, just for a moment, just a walk to clear my head. Lily and I used to walk together down here before charms, and, oh, Remus, what if she isn't okay? She rambled, looking hopeful and sweet and open, her short hair sticking up at odd angles in the cool wind of the morning, the flannel tied around her waist fluttering at her sides. Remus stuttered out something that Marlene must have mistook for shy bashfulness or agreement, for she smiled in relief and began walking in the opposite direction of the Whomping Willow and towards the greenhouses. Of course, yes, I uh, have a bit of time to spare, before. His mind spiraled as he tried to stitch together a believable excuse, distracted by the blush on Marlene's cheeks and the way her hand felt on his scarred wrist. But no matter, as Marlene wasn't really listening. She launched into a monologue about how worried she was about Lily, how much work her dear friend would have to catch up on, how unfair Lily still couldn't have visitors. Glancing back at the waving branches of the willow beyond Hagrid's, he thought briefly, before allowing himself to be led away with butterflies rising in the pit of his stomach, that he could spare a few moments for a friend in need. Just a few. Remus's whole body shivered uncomfortably, in a way that had nothing to do with the cool air lifting his fringe, the brightening sky of mid-morning having long since enveloped him and Marlene. They were standing close together, just beside Greenhouse 4, Marlene's hand having slipped carefully into Remus's, her thumb sweeping idly across the scars on the back of his hand. She didn't seem to mind how clammy it was, or aware of how close they had drifted together as the minutes had ticked by. Off he went, she tittered. Poor Sally had to chase them right down into the valley. The ripple through his body distracted him from the story Marlene was telling about a time she saw a flock of pixies kidnap a neighbor's crup. Remus, is everything all right? She asked with a raised brow. Cold fear shot through him. Fuck, he exclaimed, looking down at his watch. He had been so enamored with her transformation, from shy and worried about her friend to the sly smiles and boldness she was exhibiting now, that he had actually forgotten about his own impending transformation. He hadn't realized it was 9.55 a.m. He only had seven minutes to get to the shack. Fuck. Marlene looked slightly alarmed at the outburst, and she widened her eyes, her hands going slightly slack in his now trembling grip. I have to go he managed to mutter before dropping her hand and tearing off in the opposite direction, another familiar shiver running down his spine. Remus, Marlene called after him, sounding dejected and hurt and confused. How could he have been so stupid? How could he have let something as inane as a pretty girl with short hair distract him from something so important, something so dangerous? He was running full tilt, his lungs burning as he headed for the Whomping Willow, 
He had told himself, when Marlene changed his trajectory, that he could spare a few minutes, no problem. The moon wouldn't rise for a while. But then, but then time did that funny thing, where it no longer seemed linear, or it sped up, or it looped back on itself, or something. Because he didn't know how it went from just shy of 8am to suddenly nearly 10 without him noticing. It had been so easy to wrap himself up in thoughts and worries of Lily, many of which he shared. And then the small catharsis of trust, that devious thing. And then the way Marlene had seemed so comfortable with him. And that was new and beguiling too. No, 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 he muttered to himself, panting and feet slapping hard against the earth as he felt his skin contract uncomfortably. He had to get there. He had to make it in time. He couldn't change yet. It was too dangerous. There were too many people kindness to all living things and all sorts of loftily inconceivable virtues seemed like a cruel and incoherent joke. The tree loomed just ahead of him as his heart pounded uncomfortably hard. He was so close. He was almost there. A sliver of a white orb was just visible over the mountainous horizon as he yanked his wand out and wheezed the Wingardium Leviosa that allowed him to guide an errant stick to the knot on the gnarled trunk of the flailing ominous tree. Not yet, not yet, please, no, he begged, as he felt another, more violent shudder run through him, his bones aching and stretching, skin crawling. He still had to get through the tunnel and seal himself on the other side. He couldn't change here. Stupid, stupid wolf, he snarled as he threw himself into the tunnel and ran as fast and as hard as he could, bent awkwardly as he was no longer short enough to stand up straight in such a small space. He muttered dire threats to the wolf in his chest as it clawed its way to the surface of his consciousness, feeling the lunar tide pulling it forth, calling it. His whole body sang with the inevitability of it. He wasn't going to make it. He wasn't going to be sealed safely away. He was going to transform here and now in this tunnel at ten in the morning on a Friday with the grounds full of innocent, unsuspecting students, unmarred and uncursed as they were. Flashes of the cat and the hair he had coughed up and the way he'd torn something so small and helpless and innocent started streaming through his mind. Sharp claws burst forth from the tender nail beds of his human toes and Remus fell forward, pain shooting up his wrists as he braced himself on the hard dirt floor of the passage. His body writhed in pain against his control as he desperately tried to kick the shoes off of his rapidly morphing feet. He had no control of the howl of agony and fury that ripped through his throat as his human mind scrambled for purchase. The last thing he remembered as the wolf took over and the fur pushed through his pores was looking towards the light at the end of the tunnel and the dancing shadows of the willow's branches beyond and moving back towards it. A pitiful moan escaped Remus's mouth and made him painfully aware of the chill of the night air. It was dark and the grounds beneath him were much too soft and irregular to be anything as familiar as the shrieking shack or the smooth tunnel of dirt that led to it. He sat up quickly, his head spinning and pounding and he winced, pressing the heels of his human hands into his eyes as memories of his transformation trickled into his mind thickly and slowly at first, and then rapidly and all at once. He had transformed in the tunnel. He hadn't made it to the safety of the boarded-up house. He had transformed and shredded the clothes off his back and howled a deep, guttural call of joy at the sight of daylight beyond. 
he had run towards the light, ready for the chance to stretch his legs and run full speed to hunt, to feed, to fight. Remus winced, his hands gingerly feeling his ribs and the sharp, radiant pain he felt there when he inhaled deeply. He remembered the whomping willow landing a startling and horrible blow on his side, sending him tumbling and sliding back into the tunnel from just beyond the entrance, well screened by grass that had been encouraged to grow long between the thickly buttressed roots. He groaned and laid back down in the mulch beneath him, the nighttime sounds of the forest around him rising like a chorus, magical and peaceful and so very at odds with his memories of the tree. He had fought the Whomping Willow for hours, throwing himself into its flailing and aggressive branches over and over, trying to find a gap to escape through, a weakness. He had prowled and calculated, bit and scratched, managed to snap off several small whip-like branches in his efforts as they peppered the tunnel entrance relentlessly. A cold wind tumbled up through the valley and he shivered violently. The dawning realization that he was naked in the forest begot a grunt of frustration, which was amplified into an aggrieved and prolonged groan when he realized his wand was probably still in the tunnel. Tilting his head back, Remus took note that the stars were bright and the sky was clear up beyond the canopy. Had it not been such a completely shit situation, he would have been struck with the beauty of it. Instead, he pulled himself back from the dark sea of the sky and rather assessed his body carefully for other injuries. He was sure his wrist was sprained. His left thigh was so sore that when he tried to stand, he nearly fell right back over, and he could feel the paunchy swelling of a black eye and the taste of dried blood of a nosebleed. To his surprise, however, despite his obvious physical injuries from wrestling a powerful magical tree, he felt, well amazing. His body felt strong and solid and pulsing with magic, and when he focused on it, he was surprised by the burst of a warming charm that erupted from his fingertips and yelped in shock. He had never done wandless magic before. Again, he tried to stand and stretch his limbs out. He felt strong. He felt good. Normally, after a transformation, he felt ill and shaky. His bones all hurt, and he always had that lingering feeling of a fever that just wouldn't break. Lifting his nose into the air, he breathed deeply. The thick, mossy smell of the cold forest filled his lungs. He remembered the victory of finally, after hours and hours, and after twilight settled outside the tunnel, dashing with quick agility and slipping between the whip-like branches that had kept him restrained for so long. Gaining the high ground with the grass beneath the wolf's pawed feet for the first time, he lunged towards the forest edge, bursting with the joy of it. The moon had been high in the sky, and he slipped seamlessly through the underbrush, his muscles burning and lungs bursting with the power of his howling. It had been exhilarating, life-altering. Nothing had ever felt so good in Remus's entire life. He had been wild part of the woven tapestry of the deep forest, running and howling and leaping with elation at the vast freedom sprawled out in all directions. The realization of it hit Remus like a punch to the gut. He had always imagined being free and unencumbered as the wolf would be terrifying and dangerous, that he would have a trail of destruction and blood leading people to condemn him that he would run from the forest and the promise of easy prey rather than the dark expanses between the trees. 
No, instead he had run and frolicked, chased birds, rolled in muddy snowbanks, and leapt into frigid waters of running streams, letting the icy drops run rivulets through his thick fur. It had been astonishingly liberating and lovely, and his heart ached with the knowledge that this is what he was meant to do every full moon. He and the wolf were one, and trapping that wolf every month was part of why he felt so shit all the time. He was neglecting and repressing an important, integral part of his person, his being. Amidst all these dawning realizations, gaze drawn back up to the stars, blazing bright in the dark sky, drinking in the coldness of the night and the power of the magic pulsing through him, reality crept back in around the edges. He had transformed. He had gotten free with other students out on the grounds. Yes, the wolf ran to the forest, but what if it hadn't? He could have hurt someone, killed someone, transformed them. He could have hurt Marlene. His magic wavered, flickered with his uncertainty, his guilt. The cold crept back in and he shivered. He tried to dig deep again and bring forth the magic that kept him warm, but it was retreating, cowed by the overwhelming reality of his stupidity. Fuck, he swore loudly. His shoulders dropped, and with an intrinsic sense, he turned towards where he knew the castle lay and began the arduous and miserably cold journey of a naked hike through the forbidden forest in March. It was only about thirty minutes of muttering swears and stepping on sharp sticks with his coldly numb toes before he reached the edge of the forest. His magic sporadically and unpredictably burst forward to keep him from succumbing to frostbite and hypothermia every time he let himself sink into the memories of the way the underbrush felt against his fur and springy soft mulch beneath his wide paws as he sniffed out the nest of ground birds and chased them through the dappled moonlight. It was, however, punctuated with the alternate, very human and very uncomfortable reality of the situation. Ow! Ow! Fuck! God damn it! Stupid fucking wolf. What the? Merlin's tits. He groused in a steady litany until he reached the edge of the forest. He could see the castle, a few random lights burning in Gryffindor and Ravenclaw Tower, and he wondered how on earth he would, could sneak back inside, naked. His ribs were now burning with pain, making breathing a bit of a chore. His wrists were throbbing, and he knew that he couldn't avoid going to the hospital with such a dramatic limp. He wondered dejectedly why in the name of Merlin's pants the wolf hadn't taken him to the hot springs. A dip in Osler's fire was all he really wanted, for surely there was nothing of danger to a werewolf there in the night, even if the mysterious shrieks of his last visit terrified his human self. Now, how to get back to the castle? Looking around him, he assessed the situation before picking up a fistful of leaf litter and smashing it against his exposed groin for some semblance of decency and, let's be honest, warmth. Feeling properly embarrassed, he began to shuffle along, hunched over, like some lame and shameful creature, a human this time, to Hagrid's hut. He knew it was a dangerous move, but if anyone would help him and not ask too many questions, it would be Hagrid. Large pumpkins and oversized cabbages gleamed in the starlight, and he zigzagged through the patch towards Hagrid's back door. He thanked his lucky stars that a candle still burned in the window while smoke billowed from the chimney. Remus took a deep breath and braced himself before knocking. Hagrid, he whisper yelled, readjusting the hold on his smattering of leaves and sticks, his voice gruffer than he was anticipating. Hagrid, I need help. 
Immediately, he heard an angry hiss, claws on wood, and Hangrid's deep voice. Back to bed, Elgie. Who the ruddy hell is here? No, Al, get out of the damn way, you beast. Oh. Hagrid had opened the door, swaying slightly on the spot and smelling strongly of brandy, staring down with mounting confusion at a naked Remus clutching leaves to himself and shivering in the cold. I don't want to know, he said resolutely, turning away, leaving the door open for Remus. I ruddy well do not want to know. Don't tell me. Can't keep a secret anyway. Bloody well, get in here before someone sees you. Merlin's beard, naked student showing up on my door. What on earth do you think you're doing? No, don't tell me. I told you. Don't bring those leaves in here. No, wait, don't put them down. Remus, still hunched in the doorway and clinging to his precious leaves like they were the only thing preserving his dignity, looked at Hagrid pleadingly. I need a sweater or something, please. Hagrid continued his muttering as he rummaged in a chest of drawers, pulling out a sweater so large it could have doubled as a single tent. It's the smallest I got, he said as he tossed it to Remus, who had to drop his leaves in order to catch it. Hagrid sighed heavily at the mess and turned to pour an extra bucket of tea. Remus was so grateful for the covering that he didn't even care that the sweater fell all the way to his calves and that the sleeves hung far down past his fingers. He gathered the folds of extra fabric and tiptoed his way into the hut, but was stopped in his tracks by the sound of hissing. Hagrid, what on earth? he exclaimed weakly as a positively rabid-looking creature came clamoring and hissing out from a dog bed in the dark corner. No, Algernon, back to bed, you menace. He boomed, moving a steaming bucket of hot tea in front of Remus, who had climbed up onto the giant bench beside the table to escape the terrifying creature who did not seem to appreciate the nighttime interruption. The hulking mass of black and white and gray fur reluctantly scuttled back to its dog bed and curled up keeping a scathing and wary eye on Remus. Hagrid, is that a badger? Yep, Hagrid said, tossing the exceedingly grumpy and decidedly feral thing a rock cake. Found her abandoned in the forest as a wee baby, six years ago. She's been with me ever since. Algernon did not eat the rock cake, but rather pulled it underneath herself with her long claws and continued to glare at Remus in a menacing way. A magical badger? he inquired, taking a sip of the too hot tea, but relishing the warmth that was returning to his limbs and burning fingers and toes. Nope, just a badger. She usually just mulls about guarding my pumpkin patch. Lucky for you, she wasn't outside when you came through. Would have taken you down, she would have. Protects the patch from pests, she does. Deer and the like, Hagrid explained, sitting down from across Remus, who nodded concernedly. You look like you lost a fight with a herd of centaurs, Hagrid started, raising his hand in protest as Remus opened his mouth. No, don't tell me. I do not want to know. Just drink your tea, warm yourself, and I'll get you back up to the castle. You're to go straight to the hospital wing, you hear? Coming here at midnight, looking like you've been trampled by thestrals. Drink your tea. Here, eat this. And Hagrid shoved a plate of rock cakes in front of him. A ravenous hunger stole over Remus that he'd never experienced before, thick and consuming. It rose from deep within him, his mouth watering, and he suddenly couldn't think of anything more he'd like to do than eat the whole plate of rock cakes. So he did. Sure, they hurt his teeth and they tasted like cardboard, but he couldn't stop once he started. Concerned and alarmed, Hagrid got up and grabbed a plate of cheese and dried meats and fruits and placed that in front of Remus as well. He ate all of that too, chasing it down with the bucket of tea the liquid escaping down the sides of his mouth in his hurry to fill the deep hunger in his belly.
Hagrid's eyes were red and tired and perhaps a bit overindulged in brandy, but they were focused on Remus with a furrow as he continued to place food in front of him. Warmth was seeping back into Remus's bones, and his belly was full of meats and cheeses and tea, when suddenly the exhaustion hit him like a rogue bludger. He glanced longingly at Hagrid's bed, a move which did not go unmissed. Oh no, no you don't. Let's go. Back up to the castle with you. But Remus was so tired, and the wolf had never before been so content and warm and recumbent within him, that he couldn't stop the drooping of his eyes, as inevitable as the transformations themselves. Here we go, damn kids, Hagrid said with an exasperated fondness as he lifted Remus in the ridiculously oversized sweater and reached for the door. Algy, hold down the fort, won't you? Remus was asleep before the door was shut behind them. The jostle of being placed on a bed in the hospital wing was just enough to rouse Remus from the deep sleep he had slipped into, slung over Hagrid's shoulder. For the love of Helga, Hagrid, what happened to Mr. Lupin? Madame Pomfrey demanded as she rushed forward to examine him. Don't ask me, Hagrid said quickly, sounding exasperated and concerned. I don't know what he was up to, but he looks like he needs fixing. You're telling me, she countered, flexing Remus's sore wrist and tutting when he winced horribly. Thanks, Hagrid, Remus mumbled sleepily, irritated that he had to be poked and prodded before being allowed to slip back off. Hagrid threw his hands up and turned away, muttering, Mad kids. Lucky the owl didn't meet him alone, can you imagine? That was quite a night you had, Madame Pomfrey said softly, pouring him a large dose of Skelligro and brewed a large kettle of Dr. Wharton's strains and sprains tendon mending tea. Remus nodded noncommittally, but guilt began to well within him at the unspoken lie, and he grimaced around the thick potion. He dallied for a moment, wiping his mouth on the back of his hand, on the verge of speech as she cast a matrix web of colorful magic around him, analyzing it, before deciding on a half-truth. I, uh, I woke up in the tunnel. The Whomping Willow did this to me, he admitted, not looking directly at her. Oh, dear Merlin, she exclaimed, horror etched in the lines of her face. How did you break through that door? Remus shrugged, still not looking. By Rowena's robes, no wonder you look worse for wear. Well, that explains Hagrid, then. She was shaking her head, muttering about reinforcing the wards and barriers on the shack and asking Professor Sprout to feed the willow some growth potions. Remus shuddered at the thought. Your ribs will be fine in the morning, and the bruises on your leg and face should feel better in a few days. Get some sleep. And with that, she placed a conjured pile of normal-sized clothes on the side table and left. After Remus had changed his clothes and pulled back the blankets of the bed, desperate to sleep, he heard a body nearby tossing and turning, huffing impatiently. Lily? he asked tentatively, tiptoeing away from the bed and pulling back the curtains that divided their two cubicles. Remus? responded the wonderfully alive and familiar voice. Merlin Lils, it's so good to hear your voice. Remus rushed across the floor to the opposite wall where Lily was ensconced in a white nightgown and a pile of blankets, looking fiery and defiant, even at this late hour. She allowed a small smile despite herself. Despite Black's best efforts, I suppose. It was clear she wanted to be irritated with Remus on principle, based on his proximity to Sirius and James, but he could tell she was pleased to see him. Oh, Lily, you have to know that curse wasn't intentional. Sirius would never try and hurt someone like that on purpose. Remus limped over to the bed, clambered onto it, and sat cross-legged at the foot. 
So he said. She picked idly at the hem of her hospital blanket and sighed heavily, letting the silence hang between them. Has he been to see you? You don't believe him? Remus asked. She shrugged. Of course he has, but what am I supposed to believe? He had a curse from Muggleborns hiding under his bed. A curse meant to... She looked away, scowling. He waited, not quite sure if he wanted to know. Madame Pomfrey said I might not be able to have kids. She admitted quietly after a long silence. Or that my lineage is cursed or something. Don't tell anyone. Remus wasn't sure what to say. He was just shy of 14 and couldn't imagine thinking about a time or a place in which he wanted to be responsible for tiny humans, let alone cursed ones. It's fine, though, Lily said, sniffing, trying to sound robust and pragmatic as she wiped her eyes. He nodded. I'm sorry, Lils. It's not fair. What's not fair is that a classmate cursed me and he didn't even get detention. Shouldn't he be chucked into Azkaban for this? He had a curse in a wine bottle under his bed. Why the fuck did he have that? His parents sent it to him. Remus offered tentatively, wanting desperately for Lily to understand that this wasn't really Sirius's fault, but not wanting to tell his story or give away his secrets. They're... they're not the nicest. Downright foul, if you ask me. What makes you think he's not? She demanded, suddenly furious. He was raised by them, taught by them, fed horrible bigotry by them. How do you know he's not just like them? I trust Sirius, was all Remus could say, and I'm... I'm a half-blood who was raised muggle. That wasn't what he actually meant to say. He meant to say I'm a dangerous mangy werewolf and Sirius still stands by me. But he stopped himself just shy of that particular truth. Lily eyed him speculatively, looking at his black eye and the bandages wrapped around his wrists, her red hair lying in thick waves on her shoulders and her green eyes boring into him. What happened to you? Badger attack he said promptly with a straight face. Lily burst into laughter, a lovely, familiar thing. All right, then, keep your secrets, she said softly, so long as you also keep mine. Of course, he smiled, easing himself off of her bed and limping back to his own, finally, finally ready to sleep. March 9th, 1974. You said Hagrid carried him to the hospital wing? Yeah, practically starkers, covered in bruises and dried blood. His hair was caked in mud, the worst I've ever seen him. I thought he was dead. Remus slowly swam to wakefulness at the sounds of James and Sirius whispering nearby. Why were you here so late? James asked carefully. I was trying to see Lily to apologize again. Sirius sounded dejected. Did you manage? No, she called me a bigoted asshole and yelled for Madame Pomfrey. I have detention again tonight with Shafiq. That seems unfair, Peter offered consolingly. It's not, Sirius answered, completely resigned. Remus finally opened his eyes and began a slow stretch to test the soreness of his ribs. Immediately, James and Peter were up and frantic at the edges of his bed. What happened? Where were you? James immediately demanded loudly, and then in a serious whisper. You can tell us about it, you know. Your furry little secret is safe with us. We can help, Remus. What did you do? Peter nearly shouted, breaking the moment of trust that James was trying to build. More importantly, why the devil were you naked? Sirius queried, leaning back in his chair, with just a shadow of his old sly smile. Come on now, Lupin, spare no detail. We've been making hypotheses for hours while you napped. 
Why, good morning, Mr. Lupin. Madame Pomfrey interrupted as she tore back the privacy curtains around his bed, carrying his customary post-transformation breakfast of porridge and toast. Morning, he offered mid-yawn, feeling the stiffness in his healed ribs and the nearly painful grumbling in his stomach. After assessing his wrist and ribs, she left him with his tray of food and potions and left them all to scramble back around his bed. Sirius hurriedly closed the curtains and cast his own privacy spells, and Remus, unable to retain decorum any longer, dug into his breakfast with a fervor he'd never demonstrated before. He all but drank his porridge in one before he looked up to find all three of them staring, mouths ajar and eyebrows raised. What? he asked, feeling self-conscious but not slowing down as he tore into a thick piece of bread. James shook his head and closed his mouth, Sirius smirking in an impressed and satisfied kind of way. Peter just cocked his head and asked, Since when are you hungry after a full moon? James elbowed him hard, resulting in a squawk of protest, and Sirius tutted quietly. No tact, Peter, none at all. Though he was still smiling as he said it. Remus shrugged, scraping his bowl clean before reaching for his line of potions to wash it down. Remus, you look different, James said tentatively, though not unamused. Remus looked up to see them all still staring. What happened? Peter pressed again. Remus sighed and began to tell the story. He ignored Sirius's snickering about Marlene holding his hand and appreciated James's horror of him not making it to the shack, but Peter's hysterical laughter about his naked forest hike just seemed rude. And I must have left my damn wand in the passage, but I managed to do a bit of wandless magic somehow, so it wasn't so bad. Stop laughing, Pete. They nearly all fell off of the bed in hysterics when he told them about the leaves and the fresh horror of meeting Algernon in his Sunday best. Wait, you did a wandless magic? James asked, wiping the mirth from his eyes. How? Dunno. My magic feels different, though, Remus offered cautiously, examining his scarred hands and feeling the persistent buzzing beneath his skin. A magical badger, though, right? Sirius clarified. No, totally non-magic, bog-standard badger. It hunts deer? James sounded astonished. Apparently so. Doesn't like me much either, Remus said, remembering the glowering looks of Algernon's beady little eyes and her clackety-clawed toes on the wooden floor, hoping dearly he'd never have to run into her again. So, how did it feel? Peter asked in an unusually thoughtful tone. How did what feel? Remus asked with a raised eyebrow, still thinking about the menacing badger. You know, being out there. In the wild, he asked, averting his eyes as if he thought that maybe it was an improper question. Oh, Remus said, surprised. The feeling of elation and vibrancy that he had awoken with in the cold forest had yet to abate, and a small smile lifted the corner of his mouth. Brilliant, actually. All three of them grinned and glanced at one another, mischief alight in their eyes. March 10th, 1974. Stand still, you worthless goblin warts, shouted Filch as he hobbled up and down the line of students waiting in the front hall. Mates, guys, my dudes, where are we going first? James asked, bouncing up and down. His hair was wild and his eyes intense behind his squared glasses. Honeydukes, dervishes, zonkos, the three broomsticks, where are we going? I'd like to find some owl nuts for Claudia, Remus offered, adjusting the collar of his blue jumper. The hall was filled with the chattering and of animated students ready for a day off out and off the grounds. The front doors were thrown open and the brightness of the day and the crisp air of spring were flooding in, filling them all with a sense of anticipation as they stood in line. 
Yeah, sure, whatever you want. It's your birthday after all. James nearly shouted with his overenthusiasm, readjusting the glasses that kept slipping down his nose. You think there are any wizarding shops that sell muggled t-shirts? Sirius asked thoughtfully, looking down at his Snowdonia shirt that stood out starkly beneath his opened wool jacket with the dark blue silk lining. The thing was so beat up and threadbare, Remus wondered if it could still really be considered a shirt. Don't know, but we can find out. We have all day. James had been this level of near manic exuberance about this Hogsmeade trip for weeks. By an unlucky series of detentions, full moons, and loyalty to the idea that Hogsmeade should be experienced by all four of them together for the first time, they had managed to miss the first two trips of the year. It had been downright painful to hear all of their classmates go on about their time off the grounds and to see all the treasures and treats they'd brought back to the castle, bursting with the novelty and the magic of it all. Oh no, I forgot my money in the tower, groaned Peter, patting down his pockets wildly. Wait for me, he yelled, dashing off. Sirius watched him go, shaking his head. Kid would lose his hands if they weren't attached. Remus compulsively checked his own pockets, making sure he too had his pouch of wizarding gold. He had gone through the very sketchy process of exchanging his muggle money through owl service and felt even more precious about it than he usually would. There was just something so especially nerve-wracking about giving your pet owl 50 pounds worth of crumpled paper notes and coins and waiting for its safe return. Before he had sent the money off, Sirius had taken his five-pound note and a fifty-pence coin and scrutinized them with great intensity. "'But this isn't even real gold!' he exclaimed, biting the coin doggedly. "'Are you sure this is real money?' "'Of course I'm sure,' Remus said, snatching it back covetously and defensively. "'I earned it at my job, and I can buy things with it in the muggle world.' Sounds like a scam, Sirius had said with an unconvinced countenance, watching Claudia swoop out the window and heading off towards London. In return, an austere and judgmental-looking owl brought him nine galleons, twelve sickles, and eighteen canuts, with a receipt stating that the conversion cost was six sickles. His eyes scanned the exchange rates, and it nearly did his head in, so he stuffed it away and decided to trust that the goblins wouldn't rob him of his scant summer pay. Sirius was shocked that the goblins accepted muggle money at all. How did you think Muggleborns got their hands on wizarding gold then? He asked Sirius, who shrugged noncommittally. Filch got to them as Peter came running and panting back, his hair disheveled, face red and sweaty. The old caretaker read down the list of students, clearly looking for someone to chase off, disbelief etched in every line of his face when he found that all four of their names were on the list. Very well then, he muttered threateningly. These doors will be closed at eight sharp, and Merlin help the sad soul who comes running up the lane after curfew. They took his warning with a grain of salt and scampered down the steps and into the bright morning, eager to stretch their legs and let out their barks of laughter into the open sky. The walk to the village was filled with James's delight, and even Sirius seemed more buoyant than he had of late, with news of Lily's return to the dorms lifting him out of the depths of his self-loathing. And while she hadn't accepted any of Sirius's many attempts at apologies, she had insulted Sirius and James over eggs that morning, immediately brightening his grim visage. He seemed to take significant heart from the fact that she was returning to her old curmudgeonous and antagonistic self. Remus relished the cold air against his reddened cheeks and warm sun beating against his knitted sweater. He felt strong and happy and unlike how he normally existed in his day-to-day -day life. He tried to follow the conversations floating around them as they were passing the station, but his mind kept drifting back to the forest, to the dappled moonlight and the lightness he felt in his body, 
to the cold water and the warmth of his breath as he had run with abandon. Ready for Zonko's? Sirius asked, elbowing him and distracting him from his contemplation of what it meant to exist in this body. What? Oh, sure. Lead on, then, he said, finally taking stock of their surroundings. The village of Hogsmeade was, well, magical. It was the picture-perfect scene of what any muggle would think a magical town full of magical folk might look like. The traditional waddle-and-daub houses were all topped with their steep A-frame roofs. Some of them were even thatched, like the old farmhouses Remus had seen in Wiltshire on a trip once with his mum. It was a perfectly charming and utterly pleasant place, with its tight little lanes and oil lamp posts, its wooden carved signs and magical ads pinned up in the windows, exclaiming the wares and goods within each shop. Their feet carried them down the main road, following a group of older Ravenclaws as they made their way to the three broomsticks. Glancing down a side road, Sirius slowed and heralded their attention. I hear the hog's head is good fun. No, Sirius, we talked about this, James said in exasperation, pulling Sirius forward by his sleeve. We're going to be perfectly well-behaved today so that we can ingratiate ourselves into Minnie's good books, and the next time we come, we can go snooping around for a bit of mischief. Deal? Ugh, fine, Sirius moaned. It's all just so so quaint over here. Don't know how anyone can stand it. Oh, bah humbug, chortled Peter. It's fine enough. What's wrong with a peaceful day out? Nothing. It's all perfectly lovely, griped Sirius with a deadpan expression and a tone of deep and harrowing resignation. Remus smirked and nudged him genially with his elbow as James took the lead and marched them straight into a brightly colored shop covered in streamers and glittering advertisements for ridiculous joke items. James and Peter dashed through the narrow aisles and teetering stacks of mischief-maker supplies, picking up as much as their arms could hold. There was everything they could ever want, from dung bombs to fake wands that turned into giant turkey legs when he tried to use it, and the adventure flavor box of Birdie Bot's Every Flavor Beans. Remus gave that one a wide berth, as it had flavors such as goat's blood, storm clouds, and existential dread. Sirius even found a small tin of powder that claimed to suck the light from a room when tossed to the ground for up to a whole minute, in which they were all very interested. Imagine the glory of the pranks we could pull on the Slytherins, Peter crooned, what I wouldn't give to toilet paper their common room. Forget the Slytherins, Sirius scoffed. I wouldn't waste this on them. Think of all the unencumbered exploring we could do. We could finally get past Filch to check out that third floor corridor that's always locked. After Zonko's, they meandered, laden with many items they didn't really need, but wanted nonetheless, to the Owlry, where Remus brought Claudia some mice-flavored treats and a new leather thong for her mail deliveries. Peter was hissed at violently by a mulish ginger cat with a snub nose, which startled him into a cage full of ravens that burst into displeased or rasping cawing. Sirius pulled him away from the shrieking birds, and James dusted the feathers from his jumper with an aggrieved expression. Next, they went to Scrivenshafts, where James insisted they all get new quills, lecturing Remus on the state of his handwriting. But I prefer muggle pens, Remus said defensively. Quills are outdated and stupid. They're impossible to write with. My handwriting is just fine, thank you very much. Yours looks like chicken scratch, Sirius teased. Says the one who was practically born with a quill in his hand, muttered Remus, refusing to spend his hard-earned summer money on a quill that would just make him angry anyway. I heard that. Sirius said, shooting a stinging hex around the shelf of inks. James, in his interminable enthusiasm, came ambling over in much excitement, interrupting Remus's retaliatory jinx. Look, 
He shoved a bottle of something shiny and iridescent under their noses. It's invisible ink. We can really up our note-passing game. But if it's invisible, how do we read it? Peter asked. There's a spell. Look here. And he launched into an explanation involving Harriet's seventh law of material substantiation that went clean over his head. I'll take your word for it, Remus chuckled at James's eye roll. Anyone fancy a butterbeer? piped up Peter as they exited Scrivenshafts, their arms now positively burdened with new and exciting things. Turning down the lane, they marched towards the pub with its swinging sign and the red wooden door. The three broomsticks was in the middle of a roaring trade with students and locals and professors alike, all milling about and talking over one another. It was warm, but not stuffy, with all the windows thrown open to let in the early spring breeze. It smelled like clean pine wood and cinnamon, of warm ale and whatever delicious stew was cooking in the giant cauldron over the fire. The sound of it hit Remus, and he flinched a bit when Peter shouted that he would get them all butterbeers if they found a table. And Remus was grateful to find a place to sit, in the corner booth behind the stairs. Sirius dramatically and chivalrously pulled out a chair each for him and James, bowing in turn, before placing himself on the bench across from them with a wink. Soon Peter was shuffling in beside Sirius and placing down giant mugs of butterbeer before them. Near the end of their drinks, and an argument about the ethical harvesting of rare potion ingredients, or as Sirius yelled with incredulity, the misnomer of ethical dragon poaching, a pair of old men shuffled into the booth beside them. One with a gray beard and houndstooth flat cap spoke with a thick, nearly indiscernible Scottish accent to the one with the brown tweed cloak and neatly trimmed mustache. Barty, I tell you, I'm my mother's grave, old man. There is something wrong with that house, he pressed. I know. I know your stories, Lachlan, and the keep at the hogshead says it must be unsettled spirits and the like, Barty countered, taking a sip of his tumbler of steaming fire whiskey. James's foot nudged Remus, who set his drink down to pay closer attention. All boarded up, no residence for years, and yet the shrieking wakes me up every bloody full moon, Barty. When is someone going to call the ministry for an exorcism? Lachlan asked, rubbing his hands down his thick beard with a furrowed brow. The ministry won't come bothering no ghost that's minding its own business, you know that. The man chortled at his friend's fretful intensity. Didn't know all you needed was an exorcism, whispered Sirius conspiratorial over his mug before getting out of his seat and making his way back over to the bar. Peter snorted and choked on his drink. James was fighting an undignified fit of the giggles as he whispered, Happy birthday, Remus. We've decided to perform an exorcism on you. For your furry little problem, you know. Oh, fuck off, all of you, Remus groaned, trying not to laugh. That's not a very nice thing to say, Sirius said, slipping back into the booth with a smile that instantly made Remus suspicious. When Remus turned in his seat, he was horrified to see that the barmaid, Madame Rosmerda, was walking towards them with a slice of chocolate cake absolutely covered in sparklers, drawing the eyes and attention of everyone at the bar. Oh no, Remus groaned, hiding his face in his hands and slumping down in his chair. Oh yes, shouted James, pounding his fists on the table. Cheers, Remus, Peter said as the flaming, sparkling piece of chocolate cake was placed in front of him. Please don't, he begged of all of his friends, feeling loved but also completely mortified, looking at them through the gaps of his fingers. Sorry, Lupin, Sirius said, clearing his throat, not looking sorry at all, and beginning to sing happy birthday at the top of his lungs. James and Peter joined in with far too much enthusiasm, and soon the whole damn pub was singing, and Remus couldn't think of a worse hell. At the end of the song, everyone clapped and whooped, 
James and Sirius loudest of all, and Remus put the sparklers out with magic, deciding very quickly he was not about to embarrass himself further by trying to blow them out. I hate all of you, Remus groused as he took a bite of the cake before shoving it to the middle of the table to share. We love you too, Peter said, taking his own bite. Now, lads, we've got a few hours left. What else can we do for this old man's birthday? Sirius asked as he too helped himself to cake. I'd like to get my wand back if anyone cares to help me, Remus piped up hopefully. Oh, all right, we'll go get your wand back, Sirius said with a smile. I've been waiting for ages for you to teach me the trick of the Whomping Willow. Remus glared at him, open-mouthed. Black, I swear. Come on, Remus, Sirius grinned, swallowing down a huge mouthful of cake. A super-secret hideout where we all get to go and yell and get into trouble until the wee hours of the morning with none the wiser? How could you ever pass that up? Remus thought, later that night, his wand on his bedside table, that this may have been his best birthday yet. Lily was out of the hospital wing, and Sirius was regaining his normal swagger. Peter and James had fresh black eyes because they didn't take Remus's warning about the Whomping Willow seriously, and Sirius had laughed so hard at them that he tripped down the tunnel with a little grace. This last moon had brought his most profound transformation and realizations yet, and had colored all his days since, brightening them and making him feel happy and content. He hoped dearly that it would last, and tried not to think about what he would do the following moon, shut back up in the shrieking shack. Okay, okay. The discussion. Yeah. Although you recorded without me. I know, I'm sorry. So now I don't really know what happened. Although I vaguely know what happened. Okay. Step one. What was the most difficult part about writing this chapter? Weirdly enough, that scene that you left me with at the hospital. Why? Why do you think? I don't know. I just, like, really... I rewrote it, like, several times. And, like, yeah. pieces of it over and over again. Um, Are you happy with the way it is now? Yeah, happy with it now. It just took me a long time to get there. Do you think it's missing anything you would have wanted to add? More Professor Shafiq. Yeah. But I, I, I just, I really struggled and I was like, I have to leave it. I just, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Why is it so difficult to write those scenes? I don't know. What a, what about those, like, big momentous scenes? Is it just, like, the gravity of it? So, like, I you think so. just avoid it instead? Yeah, I think I, A, I avoid it, and I, I hyper-focus on, like, weird and name details, which I think is my coping mechanism in actual big moments. Like, real life? Yeah, real like, life. Like what? Like, I, if, if I'm going through, like, something big or intense, I'll hyper-focus on something super bizarre, like my shoelaces, and I will remember every weird detail about the shoelaces, but maybe not so much about what's going on around me. Mm. So what do you think you did in that hospital scene? Um, what was your hyper-focus? Well, it didn't make it into the scene, but I hyper-focused on um, Peter's robe, which oh, it which, is, yeah. which got changed slightly. It's still in the scene, but like yeah. the way that I originally wrote it, like I was hyper-focusing on the robe. Yeah. Yeah. And it was sort of, I think you ended up rewriting it because the way you initially wrote it came off as a bit odd mm. and I think that's because you were so like fixated on yeah. it maybe mm. um, it's what I do do you think that's helpful? no probably not do you think you notice when you're doing it? no not initially it takes me a while 
until like the big moment is over. Yeah, and then I and then in retrospect then I think about it, I'm like, oh, I was being really weird, <laughs> which is nice in writing because you continually go over it. <laughs> it's so funny how yeah. different we are with the writing. Like mm-hmm. we were talking about this the other day. How, like, well, in we we're talking about it in terms of art. Yeah, because like, you very, so, James <laughs> is an artist. Why are you laughing? I don't know. I find that title so weird. Sounds like a whole other discussion. It's a description of what you do. You create art. I know. That's true. It's accurate. What's wrong with the the word artist? There's nothing wrong with it. It's lovely. Do you have some, like, inherent unpacking to do? Yes. So much. Okay. Why don't we do that now? Oh, my God. Since we're on the discussion. (laughs) Why why do you laugh when the term artist comes up? I don't know. My therapist asked me that, too. So you do it in front of her also? Oh, I know. That's a big mistake. She's an art therapist. Yeah. I know. She knows. And she's always like, you're an artist. I'm always like, (laughs) awkward laughter. (laughs) Why? I don't know. (laughs) I just struggle with it. I'm sure you do know. I mean, I have several ideas, but Uh, I'd like you to say them. I'm sure you have several ideas. (laughs) There's a list. Multitude. Yeah, you've got to check what's going on. It's more like a hexagonal organization. It's not one singular thing. It's not a flow chart. It's just like, it's like a... One of those, like... A Venn diagram? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what do you think? So, I think it's multi-layered, as are many things. I think, one, my dad's an artist, mm-hmm. and I pushed against that for a really long time. I think you didn't push against the fact that your dad's an artist. Yeah. Your dad is an asshole about what kinds of art are, are quote-unquote, art. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. He's, well, like, really obnoxious, actually. Yeah. In his, like purity of art yeah um and I think it's been like super interesting to see because you originally went to art school yeah I mean you went to school for art mm-hmm. um and then I dropped out <laughs> yeah. yeah well yeah and very close to graduating also yeah um and then it's taken you so many years and like this very circuitous mm. path to come back to art mm. um yeah like a decade yeah it's been like a, a decade yeah solidly yeah. Yeah, because in the middle years, you didn't do a lot of art. No, I actually, I did a lot of crafting. Yeah. Like, I did knitting, I did weaving, I yeah. did ceramic, I did everything but art. But I didn't know how talented you were for, like, actual painting <laughs> until, like, very recently. And I was like, uh... So you did go to art school. You actually did art. Because the artists that I know are not actually very... They don't have a lot of, like, formal talent yeah. training. Like, yeah. I don't know how to say that, but, like, their actual skill set is not great. <laughs> we know who I'm talking about. We know. It's fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I feel like, yeah, it, it sort of shocked me. Because, like, and you, and you constantly um, are sort of self-deprecating about, like, I can't do this, I mm. can't do that, yeah. I'm... I struggle with this. And then you do it, and I'm like, that is not... Yeah, like the candles. Quote, unquote, me struggling. Paint, me trying to paint candles that, like, stared at it for a fucking hour. Yeah, and then you painted them perfectly. Like, fucking master-level artistry. Say so You do that with most topics, actually. Yeah. And, and and I think you're really hesitant to start a lot of things, because you say to yourself, I can't do that. Yeah. And actually, you put it on the canvas, and it's amazing. Mm. Anyway. I definitely think that's just my dad's voice. Do you think so? I think so. I think Specifically we, saying what? I think, because he, he's actually really good at, well, I mean, his, like, art form is realism. Like, mm-hmm. he has a lot of landscape and, like, portraits and stuff like that, and they're, like... Hyper-realistic. Yeah, hyper-realistic, yeah. and they're, like, really fucking good. 
Um, well, they're good in one style. Yeah, they're good in one style. Yeah. Um, and he didn't have formal art training, and he was always this person who always was just like, if you have the talent, you have the talent. If you need mm-hmm. to be trained in art, then you're not an artist, right? Like, he just has like, a mm-hmm. lot of problematic rhetoric about art. And, like, from a very young age. And also, like, abstract art isn't art, which is why I spent the last three years doing nothing but abstract painting. Yeah, yeah. which was quite a cool thing to, like, watch unfold. Mm. Um, and it's, it's sort of funny for me because like, I never had that rhetoric because my sister's <laughs> an also an artist yeah. and she does only abstract yeah. art and she only ever has. And, um, she's sort of very involved in the art world and mm. the art world is like, I mean, I've been listening to the dialogue about mm. abstract art for so long and it's yeah. become such a cornerstone of like modern art yeah. that I didn't really think about like where you were coming from and yeah. your approach to abstract art Mm. and um like the sort of new delving into like being abstract yeah which has been sort of cool to see um anyway what Mm. what are the other reasons that you think you laugh when someone says artist is it just your dad i think a huge part of it is and i think also because like i don't sell my artwork Mm. yet like i'm not at a point that i do and that somehow feels if if i said that to you what would you say that it was stupid it's like when you tell me that you want to do another kind of podcast, and I'm like, why don't you do the podcast? And you're like, I'm not ready. And then I'm like, you're dumb, do the podcast. Okay. It's like the same fucking thing. <laughs> I have more arguments about that, especially because art isn't the same as mm. other professions. I mean, art is yeah. an almost entirely internally driven process. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, And maybe it is me growing up listening to my sister, mm. but I mean, she would say things like, you know, it's it's the process of making that Mm. is the meaning it's not the finished product yeah totally and your process of making Mm. and creating meaning and someone viewing it and creating meaning Mm. in a story in their own sense can be two different things but also be meaningful yeah totally so i mean you saying i'm not an artist (laughs) because i don't sell my art and it's kind of yeah. yeah art is one of those professions where it's like it's about um almost like storytelling yeah, like totally. it doesn't have value in terms of like a profitability it has mm-hmm. value and because so much of our culture is contained within it yeah totally. and you know multitudes of things society culture mm-hmm. you know language yeah. all of these things can exist within art yeah that makes me think of fan fiction right like totally like mm, you that's don't true. make money off of this is not sellable content yeah. Well, because of copyright, but I mean, at the end of the day, everybody in, in yeah. because of that, everybody who's in this is doing it because they just like love the process of doing it. Well, and it's meaningful to them and yeah. meaningful to others. And, yeah. you know, the, the creation of things that are meaningful is an incredibly valuable part of our society, but we don't actually put money towards it Yeah. because the way our society has developed, yeah, exactly. because capitalism has sort of ruined everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and also the art world is incredibly toxic. Yeah, it is. I mean, just it's sort of this self- yeah, well, but not just look at your yeah. dad, but look at, I mean, the sort of, like, art scene in yeah, some major absolutely. cities, you know, mm. you have to sort of, like, suck whoever's dick to get a show on. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, that's so shitty. Yeah, like, that's exactly. not how it should be. Um, exactly. Any other reasons you laugh when you say it? <sighs> just nervous laughter. Nervous laughter. Yeah. What about being an artist it makes you nervous? I think it's that thing of, like, I've taken such a circuitous path, and I would, like... When I moved here, like, mm. I moved here shortly after dropping out, mm-hmm. and I think that was part of that rejecting 
yeah. process that I went through. And then over the last few years, it's like going back and kind of like reassessing and reclaiming things. Like I don't mm. need to reject all of that. Yeah. Some of it's useful parts of my personality. The entire concept of art. Yeah. I don't need to throw it all <laughs> yeah, in the exactly. trash. Yeah, exactly. I don't need to throw it away in the trash because. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And also sort of interestingly now, like we're talking about art, like you're going back to art school. <laughs> Why are you doing that again? I, I hope you replay this and like <laughs> listen to your reaction because that was the exact same laugh and it was super weird. <laughs> I'm terrified. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I like this? Oh my god. So, I don't know. And part of me feels like, part of me is just like, this feels like the absolute right decision. Mm-hmm. Like I was like, I'm really glad that I'm going back with so much more experience than when I was in school originally because, you mm-hmm. know, I went straight after high school. Yeah. Zero life experience aside from trauma. <laughs> and, like... Just a whole lot of baggage. Just a whole lot of baggage that I didn't know how to process. And yeah. I've done much processing, and now I feel like I'm actually ready to, like, do school in a way that is, like, healthy. I think you described everyone going through their 20s, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Totally. Now I'm, like, really excited to do school without being in my 20s. You said you are really excited, but you still did the same nervous laugh. I think... Why I did the nervous laugh is because I I have been in higher education for, like, nine years. Okay, but I've been in higher education longer. But I don't have a degree but in anything. But it's sort of meaningless. I know, but that still You just said like... that, like, your whole processing <clears throat> was the important part. No, it was. But it's... Yeah, I clearly have more processing to do about this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. More <laughs> processing. <laughs> But I think it's quite exciting that you're going back to school. Both you and I went back to education later after taking a somewhat circuitous path. Mine was a little bit shorter of a circle. Yeah. But I don't think there's any real reason for that. Mm. Other than my profession is easier. Yeah. Actually. No, it really is. I don't believe you. It really is. I require very little creative energy. And that shit is exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I can rely on, like, stuff like algorithms. Yeah. I could go on autopilot for a lot of my day once I... You actually have a building you go to with (laughs) other staff members. It's just me. Yes, and other people tell me what I should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's very easy. Comparatively, instead of, like, sitting in front of a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper, that's incredibly intimidating (laughs) and requires so much energy. No. And... And requires, like, your brain not to be preoccupied with things. Mm. Or if you're going to be preoccupied with things, those are the things you're going to make. So Yeah, they certainly are. Yeah. Again, you could draw a parallel yeah. to fan fiction and writing because mm. sort of similarly, like, when you get preoccupied yeah. with something, you have to go write it out. Yeah. Or you have to go write, like, whatever you're yeah thinking about totally before you can go back and Definitely. revisit an idea. Or, like, you know, hyper-focusing on the shoelaces. Yeah. Hyper-focusing on James's robe. Yeah. And exactly. I should be processing the real things. <laughs> yeah. We've come full circle. Yeah, we have. Okay, so explain for the people mm. what you're currently working on in terms of art. I'm doing a whole series about my experience in working in birth. Mm-hmm. And how absolutely... Wonderful and bizarre and traumatizing the last, like, seven years have been mm-hmm. working in birth here. Um, because I worked outside of, like, a structured system, mm-hmm. working with, like, traditional birth attendants, which was insane and wonderful and awful and great all at the same time. And, like, I have so much 
<laughs> so many like thoughts and weird experiences that I've had. Um, and, and not even just birth. So I, I think when I say that, like I worked in birth, people usually think like really intense, like life and death emergencies when that's not the case at all. I mean, the majority of the experiences that, that I've had have been like super low risk, super chill, mm-hmm. but emotionally getting entangled in people's personal lives through that process has been what's been completely above and beyond above and beyond it's people's personal like interpersonal relationships that have been like have really stuck with me over the years well not and not just witnessing them but like being placed in the middle of them in the most intense vulnerable experiences of most people's lives like just that culmination of that like those intersections has just been absolutely insane yeah actually and resulted in so much burnout so much burnout which i think it's not it's not surprising that yeah. it did. I mean, think about the scenario you just described. Yeah. Like every time you're with a client, yeah. you're in the middle of all of their emotional needs yeah. all timed up in incredible incredible stress, vulnerability, mm-hmm. pain, all of their uncertainty. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's an incredibly stressful job and with little support. Yeah, very little support. Yeah. So it's so like it, medically low risk, but emotional high stakes. Yeah. Like is the whole job basically. Yeah. I think that's a very fair assessment. Yeah. And I, you know, I wonder what people listening to this will sort of imagine. Like, I hope no one imagines that you weren't, you know, cause there are some, so many people I think of them with world who would have been like, Oh, well you should have just prepped them better. Or you should have just provided more counseling resources or you should have mm-hmm. just screened your clients better. And I'm mournfully shaking my head. No. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah you went yeah. above and beyond in every direction yeah. you could have possibly done. Yeah. And and at the end of the day, humans are unpredictable creatures. Yeah, and they yeah. will, yeah, they will sort of eat you alive yeah. also. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this body of work that you're making mm. is the exploration of, like, how you feel about all of that. Yeah, and, like, all of the, like, dynamics that I've kind of seen play out with yeah. people, like, starting families yeah and and all of the multitude of ways that that can happen yeah Mm. so do you think all of your processing around all of the art you're creating and all the stuff Mm. that you're exploring and that has impacted the way you're writing this fic now I think a little bit um I don't think I've really seen it in this chapter that this most recent chapter but in the way that I've been thinking about how I want to plan stuff in the future I Mm. definitely see it starting to bleed into the plot so like if people are like hearing this and then like read on from chapter 16 and they start picking up on Mm. like certain ideas and and stuff like I think that's definitely going to be so so what you're telling me is that you've never planned ahead before no I never plan ahead yeah I know yeah I just want everyone else to know Yeah, yeah yeah no I know you've got your storyboard and I'm like blind I'm just running into the dark but it's the same way yeah. that you create art like Absolutely, that too yeah. I mean you like yeah. I started this discussion because I was going to yeah. compare and contrast our methods like, yeah. I love having a plan totally. very clear structure Absolutely. Um, and you sort of are like literally blindly running in whatever direction yeah totally and I mean I love that you're so structured and organized because every now and again I'll surface and be like what are you doing help <laughs> <laughs> oh you're over there and then I start like swimming that direction yeah. but generally speaking I'm just going down a wormhole yeah, yeah. and I, I think it's sort of funny because sometimes mm. there are chapters that I've had um, where I went into it with a very specific plan mm. and then I went down the wormhole in the chapter yeah. anyway 
And it's sort of funny because having the plan mm. gives me a sense of, like, having that safety net. Yeah, like an anchor. Exactly. Mm. But, like, at the end of the day, I can still throw it out. Yeah, totally. Which is great. Yeah. Um, and I think some of the best writing I've ever done has been that yeah. sort of scenario. Yeah, definitely. So. I mean, that was, like, when you were asking me the other day about, like, certain, like, <clears throat> iconography and, like, symbols that mm-hmm. I'm painting with at the moment. And you were like, well, what does this mean? And I was like, I don't fucking know yet. I just know it's important. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, whereas I feel like yeah. that's such a different approach. Yeah. I mean, I, I think about, like, you know, let's say if I were to do art about the last mm. seven years mm. and all of the hectic shit that has happened mm. in that time, I would think about all of the events mm. and then the feelings and then, like, sort of the overriding themes of those mm. and then assign a symbol to them. Yeah. Whereas I feel like you run the exact opposite way. Totally. You appear with a symbol... Yeah. And then suddenly you start thinking about why and where it's important mm-hmm. to you. Yeah, totally. Because a lot of my paintings are also dreams that I've had over the mm-hmm. last seven years, like, in relation to birth work. And it's yeah. like, I don't know what those, like, you know, this is like dream interpretation through painting. Like, mm-hmm. I have no idea why I dreamt that, but it stood out and I remember it years later. So yeah. it must yeah. be something. And I think importantly, both methods are completely valid. Like, no, there's, totally. There's no reason that one would be superior to the other. Mm. And I think, and there are probably many more methods, we just happen to be two people instead of six people, yeah. and six people might have six different versions. Absolutely. Um, and, and sort of to, like... Yeah, I would love to know other people's, like, planning styles, like, how they... Not just planning, in, but like, just, like, processing. processing. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you, uh, let's Quite say... Lack thereof planning. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, let's say you, you went through some experiences, and then yeah. you are trying to think about how you want to sort of, like, move ahead or, Mm -hmm. like, move beyond or, like, incorporate those experiences into your understanding of life Mm -hmm. and your understanding of how you operate within your life. Mm -hmm. Um, What kind of processing do people do? I mean, you make paintings now, but, I mean, you used to not. I used to just knit frantically. I think you did lots of other things, too, but a lot of them were centered around sort of, like, being rather frantic. Like... Yeah frantically gardening or like frantically repetitive movements yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> or yeah. how many times i would like knit a giant square and unravel it yeah just to knit it again like yeah. i would never like knit something functional yeah yeah um yeah i think a lot of it were like i mean it, it sort of goes with the rest of your personality mm-hmm. and like the fact <laughs> that you have severe anxiety mm-hmm. that like you would do like repetitive self-soothing, self-soothing. yeah <laughs> Whereas if I were to think about, like, what my self-soothing is, it's probably just go to work. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And yeah. just, like, go soldier for, go on. Go for a car ride. Actually, both of us do the go for the car yeah. ride thing mm-hmm. pretty well. Um, I love going for drives. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like being taken for drives. Yes. Yeah. I do the driving. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that wasn't clear yeah. before. <laughs> But it's clear now. Yeah, the one with the severe anxiety is not the one leading the car rides. <laughs> yeah, so it it's kind of cool. Normally yeah. where we live in our cottage cabin in the forest, mm-hmm. um, where we have like very stereotypical cottage core lives, <laughs> um, yeah. which I've only just realized, like huge... Um, missed opportunity. We could have been running we could a have cottage been running core a blog, blog this whole time. The whole been so time, great. we would have so I'm like many wasted followers. years not doing that. I honestly think, yeah, 
We really missed the boat. On yeah, we that did. One. Only it would be like the follies of cottage core, like the hilarious, yeah. like not aesthetic realities. When you grow tomatoes living. and none of them want to grow. Yeah, yeah. When you plant fifty tomato plants and you don't get a single tomato for the year. But yeah. then all of your tomatoes just grow out of your compost. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Like what is that? It's rude. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think. We didn't do that because I personally didn't know cottage core was a thing. thing yeah. yeah, I did not know there were so many lesbians out there. Yeah, so into cottage core. Mm-hmm. And then Missed I, opportunity. Then I searched for it and found all of them. <laughs> those are our people. Well, yeah, those are your people. I don't, don't know. I'm sort of don't lie. I'm in the background, like yeah. breaking shit. Yeah, <laughs> like, I'm yeah. not the yeah. cottage core. The tube of shame, yeah. Yeah, getting the axe stuck in the stump. Yeah, that's me. That's your chopping wood. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's super funny. Getting so many splinters. Yeah, that's absolutely. my job. <laughs> absolutely. Um, but yeah. Mm. So we anyway we live right on the edge of the forest and sort of like it would just sort of be like, do you want to go for a car ride? And we'd just go drive in the forest, yeah. which is... Great. We're so lucky. We ten live out of ten. Yeah, we live on the edge of a giant, nationally protected forest. Yeah, it's beautiful. And it's like an old-growth, <clears throat> incredible <clears throat> sight. I don't even know how to describe it. Yeah, magical. It smells... Straight-up magical. ...different. It, mm. like, you know, when it rains, it's like... You feel like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're not That's there right shit. now. I know. So I miss it. I know. Um, yeah, really. Like, I mean, I used to always go for drives, mm. but, you know, back when I lived in the middle of civilization, mm. I would go get coffee at two yeah. in the morning. Totally. Or go get Cuban food yeah. at two in the morning. Or whatever it was. Now um, we go into the forest. Which is great. It's definitely it's better. Yeah. It's so much better. <laughs> But I mean, it's then like nothing's open in town at two in the morning. We live in such a small town. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. There's not a single twenty four hour shop. The the garages. Yeah, the one garage is open late. No, 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 they're all twenty four. All twenty four. You've just never been out in a no, at three in the morning. I mean, that's not true. I do. I just <laughs> you just go right past. Yeah, just go right past. Yeah, hyper focused. Hyper focused on that birth. <laughs> We're going to babies. <laughs> yeah, that's really funny. Um. Right, so I asked you about the most difficult part of writing this chapter. Yeah. Um, what was the easiest? The, his werewolf transformation. Yes. And running free in the woods. Yeah. I wrote that in like two seconds. Yeah. I just like vomited it out and I was like, it's perfect, don't touch it. <laughs> I think probably because you really identify with yeah. that, like freedom in the forest, yeah. like no... Expectation. I, I was going to say no observation by humanity. Yeah. Um... So, which is sort of a strange way of saying, like, you don't feel judged or yeah. there's no expectation. Yeah, totally. But, you know, with no observer, there is no anything. There's yeah. no rules. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I flourish in that environment. And not to mention that, but, like, in his specific situation, he has transformed into, like, a more animalistic being. Mm. Like, he's totally shed all of this yeah. very terribly anxiety-inducing human thing mm. You know, why deal with being a human? You can just go run and be a wolf in the yeah, forest. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I thought you wrote it so cool. It was so fun mm-hmm. to actually see. Yeah. Um, 
And I love the part with Marlene. It just, again, his, like, humanness totally forgets about this part of him. And then he's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Um, Self-loathing. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Uh, I really, I thought that was such a cool scene that mm. you wrote. And I love this idea, too, that, like, the wolf part of him has magic. Yeah. Um, and has more powerful, inherent magic that's, mm. like, unrelated to, again, his human yeah. self. And unrelated to a wand. Yeah. And I, I love this idea that, like... You know, throughout the canon series, and I think in a lot of other, like, um, universes where werewolves are explored, they're always this, like, inherently, like, evil, dark creature that's just, like, bloodthirsty. Do you think so? I think in a lot of other, like, I mean, I mean, even the the Harry Potter, like, canon, they make werewolves seem like these horrible, cursed creatures. <clears throat> so I sort of think of them in the fandom context, which is, like, oh, yeah. hypersexualized. Oh, yeah, no, hypersexualized yeah. in fandom, but I mean, in the canon content, it's just, like, very dark mm. creature. Well, that's and, because J.K. is very silly. Yeah, yeah. yeah we're huh. not talk about her. Yeah. But, like, I really wanted to play with this idea that, like, given, like, the freedom and space to, like, be themselves, like, they're not an inherently dangerous creature. They're yeah. just an animal. Yeah. This idea that, like, humans' version of coping with them, which yeah. is, like, caging them. Yeah, totally. And sequestering yeah. them, that's what makes them appear so violent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love that idea. Yeah. I really do. And, and you know, we have in canon Remus references that time as being the happiest of his life yeah i mean how sad but also i know yeah Yeah, exactly so like i really wanted to play with that idea that like given the option between like a grounds full of students that are unprotected Mm -hmm. and like the open forest he would go for the forest yeah like why would i why would i be by humans when i could be alone in the woods why would i go by the cut grass yeah yeah i could be in yeah. In the There's birds course. in there. I yeah. can chase birds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I really yeah. love that sort of comparison that you mm. did. It was very cool. Okay, yeah. and um, what else was I going to ask you about this chapter? Hogsmeade? How did you find writing Hogsmeade? I think after writing Hogsmeade in Blood Magic, I didn't really have much else to say about it. Mm. you know what I mean like I didn't want to cop out because it's a different fic but at the same time I was like sort of over it yeah I, oh, it's I, a magical town <laughs> I a thousand percent agree with you especially because yeah. I love what we did in yeah. Blood Magic yeah. so much and I didn't want to like rewrite that you know no of course yeah. of course the problem is you have to continually be so creative. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's Fuck. a point where you're like, wait, how? Because, you know, we do that thing sometimes where we latch onto an idea and we just expand and expand and expand. And mm. then there's, like, other parts where I'm like, I do not feel like developing this at all. Yeah. Like, Hogsmeade's one of those places. Me too. I also have very little feeling about Hogsmeade. Yeah. This um, actually, I don't know if the readers have noticed this, but I have avoided writing anything inside the castle. I hate writing inside the castle. I also feel like this is a place that's been hyper-explored, and I really indulge in the outside of Hogwarts scene setting, Mm -hmm. obviously outside of Hogsmeade also. Yeah. Um, Whereas I feel like you write the castle quite well. I like writing the castle. I like, like, that is a place that's been over-explored a lot, like, in a lot of places, but Mm. I find that I have many things to say still. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I actually can't... Ooh, I can't give spoilers. Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. But there's... There's another class coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Which I already know you're going to make so funny. I actually yeah, can't I'm wait. super excited. I can't yeah. wait. I'm, I'm so excited about the next, like, two years in the storyline. Like, I'm super pumped to write it. Mm-hmm. Like, these first three years have been, like, fun, but... 
I want to get to the next two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, yeah, I also really, really want them to be grown up already. Yeah, yeah me too. That's um, kind of how I'm feeling. It's hard to write kids. I don't remember what that was like. No, you do. You just hated it. Yeah, I just hated it. Yeah. I also always felt like I was old. Yeah, more correctly, I don't actually know what real children do. Yeah, me either. I think that's the problem. Yeah. I've always been a small adult. Yeah. 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 Mm. I tried to write a lot of me into this series, but if I was honest, he would be skipping class in Hogsmeade drunk like every week. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, that's a boring story to write, so... Yeah. I didn't. <laughs> He's more often in the castle, I guess. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> or assume what you will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any other things you want to bring up for this chapter? Or any topics at all. We could talk current events. <laughs> the look you just gave me. <laughs> I don't think I have enough, like... Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> There's no Pepto-Bismol in this whole country. Oh, yeah. Gaviscon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's not enough minty chalky. Yeah, there's not enough calcium carbonate. Yeah. Or bicarbonate. To deal with the heartburn. <laughs> yeah. That is caused by current Yeah. I, um, I feel for the Americans. I feel like I say this every episode. Yeah. We're like, shame, shame guys. Shame guys. Fuck. You know, we thought we had it bad recently with terrible events. Things were looking not great here. Mm. No, no, we were very we, much no, overshadowed. We're, we're fine. Yeah, things <laughs> we're are fine. Things are great. Things are great. Actually, someone messaged me the other day to say, "Aren't you glad you're not in the U.S. right now?" Message so very, so very, so very. Yeah. But there's nothing else to say. Yes, obviously. Obviously, I feel very grateful. I was able to uh, immigrate. Yeah. <laughs> and go away. Yeah. I'm really. Ago. I'm really. I really abhor the term expatriate no. or expat, but I am actually, like, the most literal version of the term mm. expatriate. Mm. Like, I have no patriotism yeah. left. There's yeah, none. it's gone. That is an empty jar. No. No. No, no, no. Yep. No. <laughs> no. Mm, mm, mm. Empty. Um, <laughs> so we're not talking current events. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because <laughs> I'm going to tie this into the fic. It's I was just going to tie to Harry Potter because yeah. the ministry and government yeah, and whatever. Totally, because I was going to say, you know, like, things are ramping up in the political climate in the story that we're writing. Mm-hmm. Like, things are, like, I, nothing was said explicitly in this chapter. Yeah. But in your last chapter, there's a little bit in the next couple well, chapters. we've been hinting. Been, yeah, we've been, like, And hinting. everyone who knows this, the canon knows what's coming. Totally. And, like, as, you know, 13 and 14-year-olds, they're not, like, I mean, they're paying attention, but they're, like, they have other things to worry about. They have... You know, werewolves but and their think parents. About and, it, but think about mm. it. The 13 and 14 year olds that are growing up in the U.S. now mm. are extremely politically No, aware, totally. Don't you think? No, I, I totally agree. Even when I was 13, 14, hell, that was... I was super was politically aware, but That I was the Bush years. Yeah, like, like, I was really politically aware, but I had no access to do anything. Oh, obviously. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, what the fuck totally. was I doing other than, like, yelling in the back of my classroom? Like, I was on Tumblr. Yeah, like, <laughs> I didn't even have Tumblr. I was just yelling. <laughs> and yeah. being ignored by the adults who were like, oh, you'll be conservative one day. <laughs> that is so funny because I went, my high school was a lot of liberal teachers. Mm. The kids were all kids of very conservative parents. Yeah. Um, not religiously conservative. I mean, even socially quite liberal, but mm. fiscally very mm. conservative. Um, 
Yeah, so I grew up with a lot of people who were... It was so interesting, actually, now that I think about it, with so much time and context Mm. away from that environment, they were socially very liberal. Nobody cared who was gay. It didn't matter. Gay marriage, it was like, fine, have that. No one cares. Marriage is a sham. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, like, don't you dare raise taxes. Private enterprise will, Mm. you know, control things the best. The invisible hand, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Like, trickle-down economics was, like, a common topic. Um, And portrayed as a validated thing, which Mm. I don't believe it is. I mean... It's not. Exactly. So, it's sort of funny, like, I was raised in, like, the very morally corrupt version of conservative Mm. society, I guess, uh, which didn't have, like, the moral high ground Mm. of, like, the religiosity, because no one was religious. Um, But, like, a lot of my teachers were, like, you know, like, my teacher who was a Quaker... You know, it would be like, that's not how you treat other human beings. Yeah. Like, you, know, you can't just base everything on money. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and a lot of, you know, very liberal young teachers. Mm. And I was quite lucky to have them, I think. And yeah, it's really lucky. encouraged a lot of interesting debate, mm. even though a lot of people were very pro-Iraq war, yeah. interestingly. Although, obviously, none of them went to the army. None of them obviously. were drafted. Yeah. Um, so, again, that's sort of like... Mm-hmm. disconnect. Yeah. You know, you can be fiscally conservative because you want someone else to go fight a war so you get oil benefit and whatnot. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Wild. Wild. Even though, like, we could actually lower our taxes by a shit ton if we just stopped, sp- like, giving so much money to the military. Yeah. But it's not even, let's not even go there. Yeah, it's not even go there. <laughs> oh my fucking god. <laughs> <laughs> what a nightmare. What a, just, like, thinking about it gives me an instant migraine. It's yeah. just, like, yeah, reading the news makes me nauseous. Literally nauseous. Because none of it's surprising. Oh, Like, no, I feel like so many all. people are like, oh, the outrage. And it's like, oh, this has been building steadily for decades. Like, yeah. were, you, were you surprised that this is happening? Yeah. There should be no shock. <laughs> like. I wonder what that is. Because I also am never shocked. No, I'm not shocked at all. I'm just nauseous consistently. When, just was, like, when was the last time you were shocked by a news story? Which just said something so embarrassingly stupid. No, what? <laughs> My first reaction was Tiger King. That's, a tr- <laughs> That's the last time. Because I, I was like, wow, he really does exist. This is the epitome of the American experience. Yeah. That was the last time I felt any amount of shock. I think I was shocked that they had so much material to go for like five episodes yes, straight. That, that's what it's yeah. like not that he existed, but like they had they had he was so still much alive. Con- they had so much content. You can only do so much meth before it kills you. Yeah, right? I know. Like, like yeah. it just kept going, right? Yeah. So that was the last time I was actually shocked by anything I saw on like the news or media. It's Tiger King. That was it. Oh, I mean, this is sort of a bad question for me because I was shocked the other day. It's what, like yesterday or two days ago, a plane went down. No, no, no I wasn't shocked. I was just nauseous. I find it quite shocking when there's big aviation disasters mm-hmm. because the aviation industry is supposedly so safe. I mean, we have so much mm-hmm. trust in it, but then... That's super fascinating because like... I have no trust in it, and when a plane goes down, I'm always like, it was only a matter of time. Obviously, it went down. Like, that's my initial reaction to a plane going down. I'm like, yeah, it's big, it's in the sky, eventually one of them's going to come down. I know, but they've, like, if you think about aviation safety, how many flights happen per day mm-hmm. that are completely routine? Yeah. 
think this is just playing into one of your specific anxieties. Yeah, specific, I found it like, shocking. Yeah, anxiety, like, delusions. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Terrified of flying. Like, right. yeah, obviously a crash. One of them's got to eventually. <laughs> Statistically speaking, it's a numbers game. Wow. Well, yeah. I have really strong feelings about flying. I never want to do it again. Don't make me fly. <laughs> I probably also won't fly yeah. anytime soon. I mean... I was talking about with someone the other day. Um, I have more than ten years left in my academic training. Mm-hmm. If I went solidly for the next yeah. ten years, I, mm. I would have still be in training for mm. ten years. That's so long. It's so long. I cannot Let's even... never travel again. We'll just like yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. I don't need to travel anymore. I'll send you to Italy by yourself. No, I don't want to go to Italy by myself. Stop it. <laughs> Stop trying to send me to Italy. <laughs> no, I've been there once. I fell down a flight of stairs in a castle. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> That's right, because you're a horrible vertigo. You couldn't see the stairs. <laughs> They're horrible patterned <laughs> steps. <laughs> I can't do cobblestone. <laughs> Shame. I fell down the stairs. <laughs> it's really embarrassing. <laughs> no, actually, at some point, I think we should go to the UK. I want to go to Scotland. That's it. That's on my bucket list. Okay, no, but we can go to London, and we'll take the train up to Scotland. Okay, S- solid. If anyone has any reason why we shouldn't do that, please let me know. Mm. Like, is it terrible? Is it very boring? Are the trains very dirty? Mm. Let us know. Yeah. <laughs> also, can we do it when they finally invent a train that takes us across the continent to get up to Europe? Because we could drive. Okay, let's just drive. Let's just drive through. I don't let's go for a car ride. Yeah, let's go for a car ride. I think Extended takes, car ride. I think it takes about 52 days. Great. Excellent. I'm not going to have that much time off. two months spent. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. We'll do it in 10 years when you're done. Okay. I'm never going to be done. God damn it. It's fine. I'll just write fan fiction about it. <laughs> we'll write fanfic about yeah. our trip across yeah. the continent. Yeah. <laughs> That would be quite Pairing funny. Rose slash James. <laughs> Enemies to lovers. <laughs> there was only one car. Slow burn. <laughs> enemies. enemies to friends to enemies. Let's <laughs> it happens. Is it because you're mad that we're driving for so long? No, I would be immediately angry because, like, the red light would come on and yeah. you wouldn't let me pull over for petrol and uh, I would, yeah. like, have a meltdown. Yeah, yeah, totally. That makes sense. That I'm checks out. so chill That's... until very specific things. Yeah, when you're at a half a tank of gas. Yeah. Yeah. That's when you fill up. Yeah. Everyone knows that. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I'm a red light e-rider. <laughs> no! How can you have anxiety about, like, the theoretical crashing of planes? Or just, it's like, because I, I have driven on Red Light E out of, like, poverty necessity for so long. You have I been know. on so many flights! I know. <laughs> oh, my God. How to coast that tank. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm very confident. I can't handle this. It's fine. Enemies it's fine. to friends to enemies. <laughs> like as the petrol gauge goes yeah. down it goes closer to enemies it's exactly like correspondent like, that would that would be me yeah yeah that would 100 yeah. percent be uh-huh. me uh-huh that makes sense this yeah. is checking I, out yeah. yeah i would murder yeah. someone if the petrol tank was empty it's just yeah. too dangerous yeah. you can't tell me that flights are more dangerous than running out of petrol in like northern mozambique right now there's almost a civil Why are war we going through mozambique there's other routes congo 
That's so much the better. The continent's so wide. It's not just Mozambique and Congo. <laughs> Is that Yeah, okay. Oh. Let's go through Burundi. That sounds nice. No, not a good choice, Mandy. <laughs> it's beautiful scenery. Oh my god. How we died in our <laughs> <laughs> oh, god. Okay, well. Or we could just stay here. It's fine. No, we're going. <laughs> Get in the goddamn car. Get the goddamn car. The tank is full. Actually, it's very low. We should fill up. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, true. You didn't want to fill up today. Oh, fuck, I've made a huge mistake. Because you know I'm going tomorrow morning. Yeah, I know. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's going to be okay. How many jerry cans can we fit on top of the car? Will that be enough to get us through several countries? Many and yes. The other thing... Oh my god, there's so many problems with this plan because you would have to drive. Mm-hmm. Because it would have to be a diesel car. Mm-hmm. Because... And then it would have to be stick shift. Mm-hmm. So you're driving the mm-hmm. whole way. That's fine. Nope, not fine. <laughs> I'm flying and I will meet you in Cairo. That's cool. I'll go by myself. <laughs> That's a horrible idea. You can... Horrible. <laughs> flying, statistically, way safer. <laughs> Until that one time... You're in the fucking ocean. Yeah, but at least it's a quick death. You don't know that. That plane dropped you don't know 30,000 feet in less than a minute. There have been people who've survived plane crashes and they're floating out in the ocean for a month. No, not a month. You would drown before that. Or a shark would get you. Or dehydration gets you in three days. Did you remember no that trust. story of the USS Indianapolis? Yeah. Is it Indianapolis? I think it's the Indianapolis. Yeah, with the sharks getting people. Yeah. Yeah, all those sailors who got so dehydrated... That they were like, there's an ice cream parlor down there. Come, follow me. And they all just, like, dive down and drown. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's be three days max. You're I dehydrate pretty quickly, apparently. Oh, my fucking God. <laughs> it's so quiet. We're, we're, never leaving, we're never leaving a country. <laughs> just to get dehydrated in the ocean. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> enemies to friends to enemies. <laughs> Quick burn. <laughs> yeah, the quick, quick, it's all quick. in flames. Yeah. Everything yeah, is on fire. on fire. It's not fun for anyone down. anymore. <laughs> yeah, the plane and the ship, everything is going down. <laughs> oh my god. Jesus Christ. <laughs> okay, what anyways. were we talking about? I don't know, we're wildly off track. Okay, I think we should end this discussion. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear us mither <laughs> on. <laughs> mither on. <laughs> Into the distance. Yeah. Okay, well... Thanks for listening, yeah. everybody. We'll be back soon with my chapter once yeah. I write it. Let us know about your creative processes. And how you feel about flights. Yeah, and how you feel about flights. Let me know I'm not. And what news there. was shocking recently. Yeah, what was the most shocking thing you were, that you were like legitimately like gasp shock about? Maybe we're just dead inside. Oh, easily. Easily. Okay. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.